Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, we always just say head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. It can give you all sorts of information. In fact, if you want to become part of our panels, that's the first step in the process. Second hour today is our show friend, Jonas Dottel, who's on the panel right now, coming in from Germany, whose outstanding Playout software program, Playout B, is nearly ready to launch version 2.0. So we'll be talking with him today about that. And so if you're actually a developer or interested in development topics, Jonas is a great source for that. And he will be here to answer our questions through the entire first hour as well as our second hour. But this is the first hour. So, Mitch, what do we have on tap for our first question today? Thanks, Bill. First up is Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. Looking at panel lights for a studio build for Zoom calls, classes, interviews, etc., with the panel, and there's no pun intended, recommend the Aperture Nova P300C or a matte light like the IntelliTech 3.0 series. Jonas is going to start us off. Jonas, what do we got? So I would say what you want to make sure of that you choose a light you can control and that you also choose a light that has a lot of diffusion. Um, those lights are meant for film production mainly. Well, that's where they are coming from. So they have a really hard light. And what you would want for a Zoom call is like you see right now, it looks pretty normal. You want a pretty soft light. And so what you should actually look at is what modifier do you need to put on top of that to get like a really even uh, soft light that you want. Some people call it beauty light. Um, and I, for example, use the Elgato key lights just because I can control them really easily. They are pretty soft and they're especially flat. So if you have an issue in your Zoom studio or in the room where you want to build your Zoom studio where you, um, with like space, these uh, panels are really flat. So they can be right against the wall and uh, you still don't have them in your face. Mitchell Hill. Yeah, I agree with you, Otis. I think that the panel lights work well in a a space-constrained area. Although for a permanent or semi-permanent fixed set, um, I would go uh, more towards the Aperture Nova, and if you're going to spend that kind of money and you don't have a specific uh, price uh, range here, so we get to have a little fun, um, I'd bump that up to a uh, light panel uh, uh, Genesis or Gemini, sorry, two two one. Uh, it's twice the size. Um, it's just a good uh, uh, light fixture to be using uh, to be able to control by DMX and other stuff like that. And again. Uh, the IntelliTech, uh, you know, kind of cool idea that they're flexible and easy to transport, maybe if you're doing a mobile setup. Uh, Courtney Gooden. Yeah, the Aperture uh, is makes a nice uh, a light, and they have a lot of accessories, which you might want to get. They have a grid for it that you can pop it out and give it an even smoother look. Um, they're about 1700 bucks at B&H, uh, which is kind of pricey, and they are RGBWW. They have a high CRI, so they photograph well, but they're probably a lot more bang for the buck than just doing a Zoom room because they do multicolors everywhere from 2,000 Kelvin all the way up to 9,000 Kelvin or something ridiculous. So they have a very broad color range and they have you know special effects like you know police cars outside your window where they flash red and blue. Or, uh, you know, they do all colors of the rainbow plus uh, different color temperatures of white. A simple bicolor uh, panel might be a little cheaper and uh, work a little better for you. You might be able to buy more panels, uh, 
you know, and uh, spread your money around and get your spread your light around a little more by going with something a little bit cheaper and a little less versatile. But the aperture is a good choice if you have the money. Alex. Yeah, the apertures are great. Um, I would probably want, as many have said, to spread it out a little bit more. If I had that, if I was limited, I wouldn't get one of those lights. I'd probably get multiple smaller lights and then put them behind something. So, for instance, the lighting that I have right here is a three foot by five foot square that just has diffusion inside of it. And then I've got three Nanlite 100Bs behind it. So I've got the bicolor and I can actually use those three to, you know, right now it's pretty neutral, but I have some cases where I might lean it one way or the other by turning one down or the other. Now, if I did this again, I'd probably get something with DMX. So, um, so these don't have DMX and I'm probably going to end up replacing them with something that does. Um, so I'm going to put something in that has DMX. That way I can have more control just from my desk. So, um, so those are the things to think about. But having that large diffusion area is, is really important. And I found, I tried for years to do it with the lights and I found it easier to build a big frame, um, which is what we've used for a lot of model shots and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said. The thing for me is desktop lighting for this kind of thing, for a zoom appearance, is a whole different world than the kind of lights that you usually take out in a kit where you want to light maybe a two-person or a three-person scene. Those need a lot of punch because they have a lot of work to do on a larger set. If you're on a desk and you've only got three, four, maybe five feet between you and the maximum distance to the camera, sometimes those big lights, and I've used the Geminis a lot, uh, they're just so powerful and they're fabulous lights, but putting one in a desktop rig doesn't make any sense at all to me. I'd much rather go with smaller, simpler panels, uh, maybe an array where you have a key light in front of you and a little bit elevated to do most of your facial lighting, and then something down down more on the desktop in terms of the small uh, panels that you can use for kickers to fill in your eye sockets and things like that. Um, I just think that's a simpler configuration for a desk rather than going with some of these big expensive instruments. The two little key lights I have on me right now, I think were $40 a piece and they came from newer. They're not my key light. My key light is a different rig above me in a softbox, as Alex was talking about, to make it look better. But... Yeah, you, you don't need to spend $1,000 for your desk lights. You can get by with a lot less than that and still do a really good job. Uh, Mitchell, you had a follow-up? Yeah, I was just uh, maybe confused by the word studio build because the studio sort of imp implied that it was a larger room and needed more light fixtures. Yeah. Um, you could you could do a lot of things like Bill saying, but a, a basic three-point system, you could use a light panel Astra Soft because it's nice that uh, you get a soft light to get that nice fall off on your face. Yeah, that's the thing. There's thousands of ways to proceed here, and it really depends on your situation. How far are you going to be from your camera? How much room do you have for lighting? Is it on a true desktop that you're sitting at, or do you have more room to work? And when you have more room to work, you can use more flexibility in your light rig. You can fly in uh, cutters and, and put gels on things, and you just have more flexibility there. All right, let's head on to the next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, putting together some digital signage Zoom Room instructions for our environment to be displayed when the system is dormant in an effort to reduce burn-in. Would a dark text on a white background be best or the other way around? Jonas Duttle. Alex is going to answer the main question you asked. I'm going to tell you I would just change it. So in the Zoom Room settings, you can have a schedule. So if you change it, let's say every hour or so, 
that's a, also a good way to prevent burn-in. So you can say like, hey, we invert the colors or like you shift the logo a little bit. Um, my favorite, one of the podcasts I watch, they have a little um, banner bar at the bottom and they started to be worried about burning because they did five hour long shows. So what they did, and it's so cool if you scroll through the timeline, their banner is moving slightly up and slightly down, just just slightly. You never will notice it by eye. It's instead when you're scrubbing, but that really helped them with uh, the burn-in. So you could do something similar where like the logo or the instructions is just a little place, a little different every hour. Uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, the um, uh, I you want to do light text over dark. You don't want to have it stay up for very long. Um, those are the best ways to do those for digital signage. If you leave them up with a lot of color or something that's going to stay there, as as Jonas uh, talked about earlier, uh, you're going to have burn in. And so, you know, turning those pixels on is is the thing <laughs> that you want to try to avoid, especially on, on a full brightness. And so, uh, but changing it relatively often, if you're thinking about that, some of the people that you might where this might end up might have a OLED or something like that, then you really want to make sure that you're giving yourself no more than a couple minutes of the same thing. Um, so, so just, um, you know, think about that. Um, but generally if you're switching between slides and not, you have instructions, you might have announcements, you have other things like that, and you have kind of a, some kind of transition between them, you should be fine. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, everyone's pretty much covered it. I would do, uh, it's contrast that creates the burn-in. So you don't want white on black or black on white uh, uh, too much. I would do gray, black on gray, and gray on black. And just do two slides of your instructions. If you have to have the same instructions up all the time for the people coming into the room on the signage, uh, just have it alternate between two versions of the same slide with the uh, colors reversed, you know, gray on black and then black on gray. And as long as they are 100% different, uh, they, you'll get, you know, essentially gray overall on the burn-in because they're alternating and inverting whatever the text is on top. So you'll never get burn-in. And if you're OLEDs, be very careful with putting, you know, white text on a black background or, or a white background on a black screen because you will leave little stripes and burn-ins on them after a very short period of time, maybe even a day. Chris Fenwick. David, I think this is really easy. What you need is an animated background with a bunch of little toasters that fly through, or maybe like a fish tank. <laughs> can we get that? Can we Kiki get that? Wipes. That app is around there somewhere. I remember the Kiki, Kiki wipes. <laughs> right. Uh, we took care of that. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks Avid was just acquired by a private equity firm, STG. Opinions on how this will affect the platform. Oh, boy, the video editing boards are burning up with the discussions of this right now. Mitch, what's your, th what's your take? I think we answered this question the other day, but basically, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. Avid's going to be okay, regardless of who acquires them. It's done all the time now. Uh, it's just a, a matter of whether or not that private equity firm will allow them to do what they need to do. Uh, in Avid's case, they're well um, situated in the uh, Hollywood uh, frame of mind and the only thing that I think that that I would personally complain about on the Avid platform, since I've got an Avid license here, is that their development uh, over the last few years in terms of features has sort of slagged behind everybody else. So if I were at the controls of this particular uh, equity uh, acquisition, I would split Avid up with, um, uh, with uh, Pro Tools and throw some uh, development behind Avid. Uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I... 
you know, I think that it's probably, as I agree with Mitch, there's probably going to be fine. Um, you know, these, they're, they're making the investment to make money. <laughs> there's not like a lot of like cutting it up and selling it for parts that's really going to make sense in this case. So I think that, uh, I think that Abbott's going to be probably fine. They're, they're, they're probably going to, the where you go with this, you just have to decide whether you think that there's value there that isn't expressed, or you think that you could add value most likely through acquisition. So I think it's probably less likely that they'll split these two apps up because these two apps are, are very uh, integrated together. And so part of what makes them a standard in the industry is that they're, that you can go back and forth between them very seamlessly. Um, and so I think that allowing that control point to go somewhere else would be problematic. Um, and if they do that, they, 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 Mitch may be right. They may do that. That would, that would be crazy. Um, but, but they, you know, that's what a lot of companies that buy these things do think about. So I think that Mitch is correct. And that's a one way is that we can split it up, make more money with separate items. But I think that that would be really problematic for both apps. The, um, but I think it's more likely that they would buy these and then either find some value that they see that Abbott doesn't or, um, that they'll buy other other things. So they'll try to buy a family that they can pull together um, that's going to be worth more. You saw that the company that bought the foundry and they bought, you know, they bought a bunch of other things there. They did the same kind of thing where they kind of went on an acquisition haul, you know. And so there's, so I think that if you if you've suddenly got a lot of money, because you have to remember that these companies are not very expensive in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> you know, like compared to a lot of other things that, that investment firms actually put money into. So, so I think that, I think that most likely you'll see, I, I think it'll be acquisitions to try to build up the value of it. Um, I think that they don't, the reality is they don't have to do very much with these apps because they're so embedded into the system. If they barely updated them for the next 10 years, they probably lose 10% of their users. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, there are some types of equity firms you got to watch out for, the slash and burn ones, which are just in there to try and find uh, products or companies that are kind of on their way down. They've been around a long time, and they just kind of peel out all the uh, all the value of the company and then just burn the company down. They just take the patents and uh, take them off. Or if they find uh, one particular product that is more valuable than the others, they'll you know keep that product, and then they'll just burn the rest. Um, I don't think this is a situation with STG. They're, they've acquired a number of media type, uh, you know, related companies that do this, the similar thing. So I think they're going to be a pretty good steward of the company uh, as long as, and, and like Mitch said, maybe breaking off uh, Pro Tools from Avid might be a way to make for them to make a little more money. But I don't think... Uh, it would be a wise idea because Pro Tools is so heavily integrated into the Avid products uh, that it might be a prob- problematic because then if you kind of start a war between the, the mother company and the now uh, new spaceship that's a competing with it, uh, that may be a problem as far as compatibility between the two products. Chris Fenwick. I think uh, what Alex just said about, you know, they don't really have to worry about it because their, their uh, user base is so ingrained. I think that's the fear uh, Alex, is that that attitude will be pervasive. Um, also, I think it's really important to remember that every great, untouchable, monolithic thing in human history that everybody says, oh, well, you know, the Roman Empire, they're never going anywhere. Well, where are they now? I mean, uh, you know, CompuServe, AOL, Crumbles. I mean, there will, there is a day in our future, maybe not ours, I'm, I'm getting pretty old, uh, where Facebook will be no more, where Google will be no more. These things will get supplanted. They will crumble. They will go away. And if you think that they won't, I think you're being naive. So Avid 
there will be a future where there is an avid. It's going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know exactly how, but it will. Alex, you want to come back in? Yeah, all I was going to say is I agree with Chris. And one of the things is is that the the interesting thing is, is that the the problem that Avid and Pro Tools have is that they're in a very vertical market. And right now, for instance, that market isn't working. <laughs> like, like that market is all out of work. So, so that is a, um, that is a pretty complex, it's not out of work yet, but it's going to get out of work in the next, you know, three months well, or six months where things are going to get. That's true. That's a thing. <laughs> and so the thing is, is that, the, the, so they, there is this risk. They've, they own this one little island, but that's the only thing that's done in that island. And if that island gets swallowed up, um, you know, that because the other industries aren't using Avid and they're never going to use Avid. Now, Pro Tools is a little bit, probably a little, a little wider base than Avid is, um, you know, as far as how it's used. Um, so it probably is a little bit more resilient, but Avid, it might've even participate, precipitated this purchase was that, that if this strike uh, lasts for a long time and it probably will, um, it's going to put a lot of pressure on a lot of companies that are in that one little vertical. Yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot and participating in a lot of discussions. And I think the industry has moved past the largest in part of the industry, which is more online, more looking toward cloud editing and the rest of that. Avid just hasn't developed in those areas. They still have those seats in the big motion picture companies and for top tier editors who need all of that collaboration work. And they will survive there as long as they can. But I agree, there's not much work happening in that space right now. And this is classic for embedded, uh, you know, really embedded companies. IBM couldn't see what Microsoft and Apple were doing because they were too embedded into what they were doing. Um, they didn't go away. They didn't die. Um, but they didn't. Ha- they don't have the dominance that they had in the seventies. Yeah, I'm, I don't think. I, I just this is a personal feeling, and I know nothing beyond. But I don't see a future for Avid past the next five years, and that's. I'm sad to say that because it's. It really did help build editors and editing into a art form and i'm not sure it's going to survive this i don't think they they started making i don't think they started changing the direction of the ship early enough but maybe i'm wrong we'll see chris fenwick you had a last comment before we move on last comment about things going away if you uh, were in this business in the 80s just remember cmx <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of companies that we knew a lot of the biggest you know if you walked on the floor at nab 15 years ago and saw how many big signs there were for companies that just aren't there anymore. They're just gone. Um, This is a pretty ruthless business in terms of be relevant or (laughs) bye-bye. So we'll see. Hopefully, you know, for all my friends who work on and love Avid and the rest of that, I wish you nothing but the best, and I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for you. Let's move on. Next question. From Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada, my favorite low overhead audio recorder editor app Twisted Wave has gone subscription. When will this madness end? Other options, multi-channel, batch editing? It'll never end. Jonah, Jonas, start us off here. Yeah, I don't think it will ever end. One of the reasons is when you look at uh, the costs of a developer, when you look at like all the things that they need to pay on, most of these are either on a per-user or per-user-per-month basis. So what one of the issues that you run into as someone who isn't selling uh, software as a service now only where you only rent the software is you have ongoing costs and you somehow have to uh, juggle the financials between, hey, I'm selling a one-time license for an app. It's even harder because I don't know if you can charge for like version five of the app, you can charge again. Um, So I think it's really 
different problem for the developers and for the apps that we use for our productions i actually like when they are subscription because then you have a low monthly price versus a high upfront price and you know the developers really interested in keeping you like if i talk to my developer friends the churn and like people canceling the subscription really is a great motivator to improve an app and add features and all that um that you that's a positive for you that you now have more power in your hand with deciding every month are you going to give them the money or not alex lindsay yeah it, it may not i don't know if you can find a one-to-one -one relationship for this but i mean if you're the batch editing is the part that's hard there's not a lot of apps that do batch editing i think probably one of the best batch ed editors out there is probably reaper so you might want to look at reaper it's not a free app but it's a it's a one time i believe it's one time I think it's subscription. Um, and uh, so Reaper has a lot of batch functions uh, in, inside of it. Uh, you can do a one-time purchase of something like Logic or other things like that. You can also get relatively inexpensive recorders if you're looking for multi-channel recording. Um, you know, Boom Recorder is one that we've used in the past. Um, but I think that you may have trouble getting a perfect one-to-one -one with Twisted Wave, which is probably one of the reasons they feel like they can go to subscription is if you're looking for exactly what they offer, there's probably not a lot of other um, perfect solutions. Courtney Gooden. Uh, yeah, I think most a lot of people are moving that are, are independent developers, individual developers are moving to the subscription model because it, it guarantees them a, a pretty much consistent uh, flow of income uh, year to year that they can kind of count on. Uh, as opposed to, you know, oh gosh, we got to come up with a new version, uh, a major version update so that we can get everybody to pay for an update or pay for the next version. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, Twisted, I think Twisted Wave was also a, uh, they had a web-based version, so it's kind of cross-platform, although I think it was primarily on the Mac. They did have a Windows version and a, and a, uh, a, a web version. So the web version makes it portable. And one problem I run into a lot of times with these lightweight audio editors is I want to have it, I've got, you know, maybe a hundred different PCs and I don't want to pay for a license, a subscription where you have to tie it to a specific PC because I want to, whatever PC I happen to pick up that day, I want to be able to have access to an audio editor and I don't want to pay for a hundred licenses for just me. So, um, you know, that is a problem. So what I usually recommend is audacity. Uh, it's a free and because it's open source, although somebody did buy it uh, recently, uh, there's a lot of uh, stink about that. It does do batch uh, export and import. I don't know what you do. talk about batch audio editing. I always think batch audio editing is dangerous because every file is not the same. You may not want to do the same thing on each batch, but if you want to apply a certain uh, uh, output, a certain type of file, uh, it will batch import and, and export. Uh, but as far, and it takes plugins, so it takes the uh, VST, LVZ, uh, and a variety of different plugins, and it's free, and it's cross-platform. It works on Linux, Mac, and uh, PCs uh, just fine, and the price is right and no subscription required. So Audacity, that's what I usually put on all my machines, so at least I have some audio editor that I know can do the job, multi-track recording and editing. It's interesting. I ran the numbers because I was in a discussion about this stuff about subscription just last night, and I would have paid, if I hadn't uh, 
paid my three ninety nine for Final Cut back in twenty eleven when they did the Final Cut ten changeover. Uh, my subscription for Adobe's full line of products would have just about hit five thousand dollars this year. So when I look at that and I th- think to myself, and this is just a personal feeling of mine, has there been that much extra innovation for that amount of money on their side? They've they've improved things and they've made new features and stuff like that. But are, is it really is that delta between three hundred or four hundred dollars and five thousand dollars enough to justify the additional profits and it, it it's just a way to look at things i i'm still really leery of drip pricing that you just get hit every month even if you are laid up and you can't do any work for six months you're still going to pay every month of that six months and that always has annoyed me but i'm funny that way uh, courtney you had a last comment uh, no, somebody else was there and they got moved away. Oh, I, I just I saw popped somebody. back up, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, this is the time when I tell you that we are driven by your questions and we love the fact that we have a good, robust group of questions today, but you still have an excellent chance because it's not only about entering your questions, which is always most welcome here. It's also about the voting on those. So if everybody who's watching the program can take time or listening to the program, take a little bit of time and go and make sure your votes are counted on the questions that are in the queue already. The ones that get the most votes percolate to the top and we get to them quicker and spend more time on them. So that's how the show works. So make sure your voting is active. All that said, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, uh, what travel friendly stand does the panel recommend for a MacBook Pro? Uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, um, the uh, I'm I'm using this. This is the uh, I don't know, broken broken. <laughs> I guess it's broken <laughs> broken. Um, anyway, so I, I, this is what I travel with. Um, I love this stand. It's thirty. You can see that I bought it in August, almost exactly uh, two years ago. Um, and this is what I travel with. Um, it's very stiff, so it really holds up. And I fo- this folds down to almost completely flat. Um, I mean, it's flat against those two pieces of metal being right up against each other. I put that in my case. When I pull it out, I pull out my laptop and I can swing it up and I've got, I can adjust angles. Um, and for $35, it's a, it's a great deal. So anyway, so I'd recommend it. My under my main laptop is one from Rain Designs that I absolutely love. It's a big slab of aluminum. It has an adjustable angle on it, but I do not travel with it because it's a pain in the tail to travel with. I use this when I'm traveling. It's a uh, simple little one, and I wish I knew the name of the company this came from. But if you look for travel risers for computers, um, you can find these kinds of things. And I think they're, you know, for me, uh, I've gotten used to the angle of my laptop, and I want something that collapses down really nice and small. So it's not a hassle to travel with, but so that the geometry of my machine remains exactly the same, whether I'm on the road or working at my desk here. And these things can collapse and become so small that they're really easy to travel with. I also, by the way, keep instead of my extra monitor, a little tiny tripod stand uh, that keeps my iPad in front of me for my second screen. So those two things are always in my travel bag. Your mileage may vary. Next question. From Dot App in Austin, Texas, Dot says, How do the different B Links compare? Are there about half a dozen on Amazon's B Link page? And I'm shocked that Courtney Gooden is going to answer this for us. Well, B Link is really in the in the business of making small form factor computers. And and I like I used to like these B Links that were this half high 
half height uh, size. The newer ones are double this height, but they're the same uh, dimensions, form factor. And they're designed uh, for uh, uh, situations where you're sitting at a desk and you have a bunch of monitors, let's say, and you used to have tower, tower PCs at each desk. You can buy one of these and attach it to the back or, or the newer ones with their double thickness um, and attach it to the back of the monitor and have a basically a, a zero footprint PC, you know, uh, without having to worry about it taking up space under your desk. Uh, they have a variety of different models because B-Link is very good at adapting the latest and greatest processor. They all use, they all pretty much use the mobile processors from Intel. Uh, so they're, uh, and Ryzen, they do use AMD's Ryzen. So you can get some pretty powerful Ryzen 9 chips and some pretty powerful i7s uh, out of Intel that, uh, have, I think they have some uh, 12 core ones, the new uh, uh, 20 core ones that are the new, the latest 13th gen Intel chips, mobile chips that are in there. So uh, it just depends on how, you know, how powerful a machine and they're priced anywhere from like $300 up to over $1,000. So uh, depending upon the power, although they all have about the same form factor. And the nice thing is they have a plethora of, uh, unlike the Apple <clears throat> uh, Mac minis, uh, they have a plethora of ports. They have multiple HDMI ports, full size. They have multiple uh, A-type and C-type uh, USB ports. So you're never wanting for ports. Some of them may actually have dual uh, gigabit Ethernet or 2.5 gigahertz uh gigabit ethernet on the back. So uh, they're very handy for multiple ports in a small amount of space. They all do have fans in them though. They do not make a fanless version. I don't think anymore. Even the one I showed a minute ago has a tiny fan in it, who I will tell you, if you leave it on 24 seven, the bearing will start to squeak after about a year. Oh, not good news, but useful information. Hopefully that helps you Doc. Let's move to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Discuss NVIDIA's breaking news just now on CNBC. CNBC Investing Club, NVIDIA unveils an update to a new AI chip that hasn't even shipped yet, an aggressive move to keep its crown. Ooh, we're in the world of vaporware. Well, not really vaporware because they have a history of shipping things. John Preto, tell us what your thinking is. This is breaking news from Tuesday, Paul. Uh, Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA, did his keynote at SIGGRAPH. And when did keynotes turn into... 80 minutes worth of advertising. I don't I don't know that for sure, but it was they 90%. Just one big ad. That's what a keynote is. It's a it giant was a, ad. one giant ad for That's NVIDIA. What That's what they do. And and his and his tagline is the more you buy, the more you save. He said it a hundred times during the presentation. <laughs> that was that was <laughs> great. They they announced two pieces of hardware: the Grace Hopper, which is a CPU and a GPU together, which scales up, and that's what GPT-4 and GPT-5 will be running in. The thing scales to massive. And then they, they came out with a new card, which is the L40S GPU, GPU slash, um, slash giant card that will, you can either put it in a workstation so you can run Stable Diffusion XL, which just came out about a week ago, and it will do like 60 images a minute. If you want to do, if you want to do visualization, generative AI on your workstation, or you can put eight of these into a server so you can run LLMs within a company so you don't have to use GPT-4 or any of the web-based applications. And so that's that's the trend line that we're seeing there. 
The more you buy, the more you save. The oxymoron gods are up in heaven, just drunk and laughing and having a great time. Alex, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I highly recommend watching the keynote. While it does say that a lot, it, it is a, a, probably the, one of the more crisp visions of the future. Like, you know, you just really see what they're doing. Um, a lot of folks that I know were both very, very excited about what they saw and terrified. You know, like there was, you know, at Seagraph, everyone was talking about that keynote. And so it's definitely kind of a newsmaker. I would highly recommend checking it out, even just to make sure that you're keeping up with what's happening. Um, NVIDIA and, and again, really NVIDIA and AMD are kind of you know, we're, we're getting, we're seeing at Seagraph, we got to see this kind of hard push between the two of them where you have NVIDIA and AMD really going into, you know, head to head, you have Unity and, and Unreal really going head to head. And it's really gotten down to two or three players in a lot of these markets that are playing very, very hard. And so it's going to be a really interesting, um, it's good for us that there's at least two um, that are, that are fighting in that area, but NVIDIA definitely has a lead and I think they're going to try to hang on to it. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, the more you buy, the more you save, unless it's the NVIDIA stock because it dropped $20 a share since Tuesday. So there you go. uh Okay. Well, so the market maybe either doesn't understand or feels that there's something uh, there. Yeah. Let's move on. I was getting off the phone with my stockbroker. Next question from Dot App in Austin, Texas. Has anyone tried Zoom Clips? Alex, have you played with it? I, I haven't played with it yet. I just I just looked at it here. I, didn't, I hadn't seen it that it come out. I think it just just came out a couple of days ago. Um, the um, Zoom clips looks, actually looks pretty interesting for most of us. Oh, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's just silly. <laughs> like you know, you're just recording little videos, but it's really useful in a uh, in a corporate environment because they don't have you know a lot of the corporate folks don't have the tools that we have to record and to do a lot of other editing, and so really giving someone an opportunity, you know, an app that they they already have opened and being able to record these videos. So what Zoom Clips does is allows you to record quick, short videos to send to other people. Um, and, um, and I, you know, it is useful. I do it a lot. So if I'm trying to show someone something, I can try to type it out. But a lot of times I'm just going to hit, re- I'm going to do a screen capture and hit record. Um, you know, on a Mac, it's not very hard to do that. But like, how do you transport it? And how do, where do you put it? And so they're really trying to solve some of those corporate issues. It does often make it cleaner and faster just to record a video and send it to someone. So, uh, and I think that Zoom is really always looking at the entire, like we look at it through, or I look at it through a video lens of how does it deliver video, but they're really looking at at it as a corporate solution, you know, and so they're looking at all the things that are pain points in that area and and make and trying to smooth those out. So I, it, it looks like an interesting one. I haven't used it. It's probably not something I would use or probably many people that watch this show would use, but I think in a corporate um, environment, it could be pretty useful. Are they trying to leverage the idea of Instagram into this? Is no, it's not really something? Instagram. This is really efficiency in corporate. So it's not, it's designed like, so So someone sends you a design or they send you something else and you just want to talk about it and you don't want to type out a ton of stuff. You can just flip it on, hit record. And there's, you know, the camp, um, you know, uh, there's, there's some little, a little program from the same company that does Camtasia that's kind of like this. It's a standalone app um, that, that will do this where you just pop it open and you just kind of just talk and you can talk and, and highlight things and circle things with your mouse and, you know, that kind of thing. And um, and just say, this is what I want to change and this is what needs to happen over here and this is what needs to happen over there. And oftentimes it's, it can be a lot more interactive and you can just send that out. 
um, even before a meeting, like you can, I've done ones where I send a bunch of videos out of this is what we're going to talk about. And I just do the videos and someone can watch them. And for some people, it's a lot easier for them to grok than, than to sit there and try to read a bunch of text, um, you know, um, to, to try to figure out how to convert, you know, text is a really good, um, compression technique, but it takes a lot of CPU power to encode it well, and a lot of <laughs> CPU power to decode it well. So sometimes video is a, not as good a compression technique, but it doesn't require as much CPU load to encode or decode. So you always have to remember that. So this is a corporate communication play, yeah, not yeah, a yeah. social media play. Not, yeah, All right. yeah. uh, Courtney, so. you had thoughts? I was just going to add that uh, Camtasia is a great product. It's made by a company called TechSmith, and they also make something called Snagit, which is uh, for the, doing I, screen capture, which is really great because it can capture things like you can go to a web page and say, capture this whole web page, and it'll take just the client area, not the browser itself, and it'll scroll down and capture that and scroll down and capture that and give you one giant uh, BMP file or, or uh, you know, PNG file that is the entire height of the web page that you can throw in and use as graphics. You don't have to cobble together a lot of different captures into one single. So from text. Right, interesting. All right. Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, the Fostex 6301 seems to be a common monitor speaker for checking the quality of a mix in real-world conditions. Are there others that are commonly used in that role? Mitchell Hill. Yeah, that Fostex has been around a long time. It's one of the first uh, small-format, self-powered speakers, and you see them everywhere uh, for years and years and years, uh, self-powered uh, uh, and in racks you know, just sitting there. Uh, nowadays, I see more Genelex uh, showing up, just more critical listening. Uh, they're self-powered. Uh, the uh, 8 Series, like the 8010, uh, is a good uh, choice there. They're small, they're uh, diminutive, but they really have really good sound, better than the Fostex. And uh, I still got a pair of 1029s that I've had here for about 25 years. Still take a licking and keep on ticking. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I agree. Genelec has taken a lot of those. We used to use the Fostexes a lot because uh, it's a good portable. It used to make a good portable speaker uh, to put on your sound cart because you could power it off a of DC. The new ones, I think, have AC only input. And they do make this new one, this the uh, 6301 ND, which is uh, AES EBU input. And so it has, it has one analog input, which is a tip shield uh, quarter inch plug, but it also has uh, AES. Uh, uh, EBU input, and of course, on a three-pin XLR, and a throughput, uh, and a through an output that uh, uh, loop through for AES. So you can just run one cable that has stereo left and right on it to each speaker, and you can choose on the speaker whether it's left, right, or both mixed together. And then you can send that same signal on down the line to another one, and you can choose left, right, or center on that one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can daisy chain these uh, into a long group without having to worry about loading down a single analog uh, analog feed, and they all support AES-CPU. I don't think they have balanced analog input. It's unbalanced analog input or uh, AES-EBU in and through. Alex? Yeah, I would hardly say that the 6301 is a is a something that you're um, you're common for checking the quality of your mix. 
I mean, almost the only reason we use the 6301 is to just know that there's audio coming out. So it's, you know, so I think that, you know, like oftentimes we have a lot of these. I've, I've owned, I don't know how many of these 6301s. Um, and they are great because we, we put them, they're in different places. We throw them around in the back um, so that you can turn it up. You have It's nice because it's got a nice little volume, volume on the front and you can turn it up and down to listen to what's going on. But as far as managing quality, uh, it's not really what we use it for. It's just there to know that there's audio and you can hear it relatively clearly. But I, I would I would agree with Mitch. The Genelex or, or KRKs and a couple other ones are what we see in studios more often. Let's go to the next question. Samuel Nordvik from Norway asks, do you use any APIs to manage your YouTube account? Jonas? Yeah, we use uh, the YouTube API for a couple of things. There's a couple um, live things you can do. You can create an ingest and then create two streams from that ingest that you can't really do in the UI. And then automating some of that behavior, we also use it to pull uh, data. If we need data about views or something, um, it's really great if you need to do something repeatedly or some like need to download a thousand videos, content, something like that. Um, that's where we use it a lot. And it's great. It doesn't break as often as Facebook, which like is, I mean, it's hard to break more often than Facebook's API. But uh, yeah, the YouTube Live API has been pretty stable for us. Alex Lindsay. We just stopped developing for Facebook because we just were like, I just can't keep on chasing. I can't, yeah. can't keep on chasing this. It was just every day it was like, oh, it's broken again. You know, or, or they've changed the security again, or they've done something that I can't, I now can't do this anymore. Uh, YouTube's APIs tend to move a lot slower. And so they work for, pretty effectively. If you're not trying to pull data out of YouTube, you, it, they're actually really, really great. Uh, if you're trying to do things like manage comments and so on and so forth, the token system that they have is just makes it unusable. You know, like it's just it's just super painful. Um, so so I think that that is the hard part. But the APIs themselves of creating new events um, and working with those events are, are really um, a great, great solution. As I noted a bit ago, you drive the show with your questions and your votes. So we still have a good group of questions in here. But your votes mean that that something that's not at the top of the list could go to the top of the list. And it's still possible. Put in a new question, maybe it'll strike fire and it'll go zoom into the top of the list. So always pay attention to your questions and voting. And we're going to go to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, Zoom calls these essential apps. Are they really and which other apps really are essential? And there's a link to a marketplace there. So let's start with John Prado and then go to Alex. John? I don't know about the the adjective essential or not. That Out of all these apps that I've seen here, the Read app, I think, makes a lot of sense. If you're accountable and you're having Zoom meetings in business every week and uh, you're managing a group of people, then the Read app looks looks pretty enticing. Alex? Or a different market. <laughs> like, like, like I don't, essential for us? Probably not. Like, I don't know. I looked at those. I was like, there's nothing there that I would bother to put on. But there's a lot of features that Zoom has that really designed for corporate uh, use and, and, you know, the corporate environment that that is theoretically more efficient. Um, and so uh, so I think that that's I think that that's what they're, they're built for. I don't I think they're meant they might be essential for for corporate, but not not really for our market. Let's go to the next question. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland, has a question. Listening to Office Hours in the iPhone app, so smooth experience and super convenient. Recently learned that the app is finally available, so I recommend others to download it. If you didn't know about it yet, kudos to the Office Hours development team. 
Alex, it's out in the wild and everybody can get a hold of it. It's not out in the wild, but it is in beta. (laughs) And so you can, you can, um, uh, it's an, it's an, you can get it on test flight. Yeah. There's a link in the Alex announcements. So, um, go ahead in, inside of discord. Uh, so we're not really ready to make it totally, uh, out there in the wild, but yeah, there are a couple things that people have sent me things i'm not developing i'm not Juan. once europe has written this and uh uh it's um it's a great little uh uh great little app um the uh he's done a really good job i've tested it for a long time uh and it does everything that i needed to do um one thing you know if you are using it and you see any anomalies that you would like to us to look at make sure to use the feedback button in the app this is a beta a very wide beta but a beta and we definitely want to get your feedback on it um so that we've, we've there's a couple of volume things that we that i got some feedback on and so we're going to be looking at it but he did a great job and it, it remember you can also open makana so you can you can um you can click on the button there i use that to get into makana when i'm not on the show to listen to the show and be able to just um vote on stuff and even just walk it you know at before the show this is how i look at what questions are coming in um, while i'm walking around the house because the easiest way to get to makana so that's another uh, useful little tip there and for those of you who may be really excited, can I get it? Can I get it? Yes, you can. But it runs through test flight. So you have to download test flight onto your Mac and, and then you kind of become part of the development cycle and it's an easier way to put in feedback. That's a whole separate thing. So if you want to do it, if not, I'm sure it'll be out before too long. Courtney, you had some thoughts. Yeah, I'm kind of waiting for that Android versions. For those of us like me that uh, are afraid to step inside that walled garden, uh, oh, wow. It's so nice in here, though. There's, there's, there's these beautiful trees, and everything just works. You know, like I was going to suggest. I was going to suggest, but Moonbeam. Alex, Alex already touched on is the Makana, the Makana uh, mobile uh, website uh, is a good place to go because you can. It's uh, the live shows are broadcast are uh, over Icecast over the little button in the upper left hand corner, and that's what I use in the morning for listening to the uh, show before it goes live. Uh, so uh, you can jump in there on any browser and or you can go to our website uh, at officehours.global and I think there's a live player there and you can listen to the archive stuff there by clicking on something and it'll play back from either YouTube or directly from the website. I'm not sure, okay. but uh, that's another great place you can uh, find archived stuff if you're not just listening to the live stream. Yeah, and, and the, the reason that we did this is, I mean, the, the start of this, of, of why we did it was because, on, at least on the iPhone, I don't know how the web version works on Android, but on the iPhone, a lot of times we would it would break up or, or stop playing when it was in the background. Um, and so the phone, the iPhone, the, the app for, for, um, for the radio version will keep on playing in the background. So you can go back, you can open it up, get it playing and then put it, you can just listen to it as a radio station. So we, we have a lot more. I will predict that by, well, within 12 months, I predict that 90% of our audience will be on that app. <laughs> like, you know, like we'll be listening to the show, you know, like I think that this is, that's why we have always said the first thing to get is a mic is because we're kind of going through there, you know, going through it. I think that that's going to be a big piece of it. And we are going to, you know, look at Android. I, we're just trying to solve one problem at a time. Um, but I think it won't be, you know, eventually we'll have an Android app as well. Courtney, you want to follow up? Yeah. Uh, Alex brought up an important point is if you're, I like an app. And, and when you're doing this on both platforms, Alex, one thing to take into account is CarPlay and Android Auto, because there's a lot of uh, things like web, you know, web browsers that Android Auto will not let you go to while your car is in motion. So right. uh, make sure that it's uh, licensed for being listened to while in motion. It doesn't require any uh, interactivity so that you can listen to it like a radio station 
while your car's in motion because CarPlay and Android Auto, a lot of times will prevent that in an app from actually working tip. while you're moving. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move to the next question. Here we have John Fisher from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Does the panel have any go-to things they like for cable management and organizing gear on your desks? Oh, do we ever. Mitchell, start us off here. I'm making my ASMR sound for you all. Uh, This is a uh, slitted cable that uh, are braided, basically, that allows you to slip the wires into it. See if you can see it better there. Here it is. Turns into a uh, tube. It's just nice for cleaning things up. I have this going to my uh, studio technologies. Around the desk, like on the outside edge, I have a wire basket that basically holds all the wire looms. And you can come in and out of the, the uh, openings on the uh, the basket. Just makes things neat and tidy. But I will tell you one thing. Uh, it's, a, it's like a rule of wiring and cleaning is that no matter how neat and tidy your setup was when you started, I guarantee you within six months it'll be a gigantic tumble of mess. Yeah, it could be. And Alex, your thoughts. Yeah. You have plenty, I know. Well, I'm a, I'll keep it quick because I know we still have a lot of questions stacking up. The um, uh, the one thing that I would recommend is that about every couple months, I tear the whole place apart and put it back together because it allows me to reorganize that and know that I, I didn't do that for a while and it just became this nest of, of stuff that I added. So being able to kind of pull it apart and look at the cable lengths. So what do I need for, how long does this cable really need to be? Um, and great place to buy those is a uh, monoprice for most of those, except for HDMI cables. I don't know why they don't make good HDMI cables. Um, one little trick that I use that I don't haven't seen anybody else use um, is I like my cables to be exactly, when I roll them, I like them to be exactly the same all the time. A lot of times I'm putting them on a rack. Um, a lot of times I'm folding them and putting them in a bag and I need them to be the same size to fit into the thing. So what I do is I put a little piece of tape um, where I need to roll it to, to pull it up. And then when I when I build it out of there, they all look they are all they're all the same. So um, so I make all of them. You know, six foot ones are all the same. This is all the same. I'll tell you what happened. The reason we got into doing this is because we had to put cables inside of big cases, and we need to put them inside of each other. And so we needed fifties and twenty fives and tens and everything else. Other than making the case almost impossible to move when we're done because there's no air, just copper. Um, it was we got into that habit, and so you'll see these little, oftentimes little logos or little pieces of tape. And when I put together my mobile rig, I have it all, every cable has that, so I can quickly put it all back in, and I know it all folds in nicely exactly where it needs to go, and it's it's very useful. I know that Chris is laughing at me, but it's very, very No, it's just useful. like, I can't, I can't imagine being your kid. I mean, it's got to be... <laughs> It's got to be a nightmare. I mean, I'm sure they love you, but oh my god, definitely, definitely. Like, see this little thing. Yeah. I mean, what Courtney. is your what is your utensil drawer okay. like? Like, you're making, you're making, you're making. No, it's a big pile, actually. Um, there's a big disagreement in the family about how the utensil should go. But what I will tell you is that you're making fun of me. Um, you know, you're making fun of me. But if you've ever seen a whole wall using this technique it is just beautiful like every every cable is exactly the, the size that it should be alex probably alex probably has a separate drawer for butter knife so yes courtney i know courtney continues <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> i don't i don't even like the, the butter knives to be different brands i mean they have to be all the same <laughs> so well, knowing me uh, my my solution was of course 3d printed uh, I printed the uh, these, designed this out of, out of TPU, so it's uh, you know flex flexy, and I just take I have a lot of cables that like uh, spare input cables that are HDMI 
uh, that I need to keep at my desk somewhere, but they're not plugged in at the moment until I bring something in that I have to plug into it. Charger cables for phones, et cetera. They're hanging loose and I'm always rolling over them with my chair. That's a problem. So you got to keep them up off the floor. So I put something like this on the legs of the table. It has a command strip uh, Velcro on the back so that you can attach it to a nice table and even without the fear of leaving it on there permanently. So this snaps on this way, and then you just coil up your cable and you pull this open, you drop the cable in like this, it holds the coil in there and then latch it back. And uh, then when you need it, you just pull and it comes out uh, very handy. And, uh, you know, it cost about 30 cents to print on your 3D printer in <laughs> I laugh at this because everybody who's in this business has gone through the process of where am I on the scale of disorganized to organized? And as, as you get bigger and bigger, you are forced into more and more organization, more and more planning because anything else just gets out of hand. Although I always remember back when I was first dating the young lady who became my wife 50 years ago and is still with me today. Um, the first question she said I had, and I was concerned when you asked me, when we started getting serious, was, this guy owns a lot of wires. <laughs> why, why does he own so many wires? <laughs> and I always think back to that. So, yeah, it's important. Chris Fenwick, thoughts? A couple of quick things. Number one, um, if you, I mentioned this a couple of days ago. Uh, 3M branded VHB tape. Think of it as... Uh, tactical double stick tape. Uh, it's it's amazing. Uh, I learned this from Keenan. Also, um, back to utensils. I said to my wife last week, I go, hey, why are there only two forks? She goes, why are you counting the forks? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> forks, forks live with the socks, with the, those single socks. They're all having a party somewhere. Let's go to the next question. Thank goodness. Uh, next question from Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts. Sketchsoft's Feather 3D sketchbook app seen in the expo yesterday feels amazing for quickly sketching out 3D things. Has anyone else played with it, and where do you see using it? Alex, help us out. I don't know. It's free. Download it. Of all the things I saw yesterday or the last two days, when I turned around and saw what they were doing it, 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 with Feather, I was like, what the what? You know, like it, it is, a, it's a 3D drawing app. You can, you can define a plane and then project your drawing onto that plane so you can build 3D, you, you know, things. I think it'll take a little while to get our head around how it works, but we're going to get them. I, I have to get them. I've already asked them to be on the show. I mean, I talked to the CTO and the CEO and I was just like, this is the thing that was probably the, again, it's, it, it's not the most computational, you know, uh, heavy thing that we saw at Seagraph, but it is just it's just beautiful to watch someone draw on it. So this is a 3D sketch program, and I would highly recommend downloading it. It's free. It's not going to be free forever. Um, and they said they've already said they're thinking about how they're going to do subscription models, um, but they're putting it out right now for me to play with it. And it's for the iPad, and it's it looks amazing. Very nice guys too. So yeah, let, yeah something worth supporting. Let's go to the next question. From Daniel Patridge from Rochester, Minnesota. I haven't been to SIGGRAPH since Orlando in 1998. Is the CGI booth still the biggest booth? Seriously, who has the biggest presence at these modern SIGGRAPH shows? I didn't even see Silicon Graphics. Did anybody no. else see us? SGI, yeah, yeah. not CGI, but SGI was, was the yeah. thing. Well, so the, the funny thing is, is that um, none of the booths are, were that big, which is kind of nice. So I will say that we don't have these cavernous booths. Back um, in the early 90s, the SGI booth was probably the size of the 
expo, the expo today. So it was just a massive booth, these massive booths that were um, just cavernous. And the problem is we see these at NAB, they're just a lot to walk through and a lot to walk around and they're really loud. I actually enjoyed the Seagraph, uh, the, the, the smaller booths, no, almost nothing was more than 20 by 20. And I, and I really enjoyed walking through that more than almost any other one that I've been at for quite some time. I mean, you know, it's just, it was really, really easy to get to see a lot of things. It wasn't these massive booths and then tiny booths. It was all 10 or 20 foot by 20 foot. And I, I really enjoyed it. I don't know if they're making money at that, but I think that it was, it was a very, very enjoyable experience um, to just kind of wander through and see lots of ideas without a lot of scale. Courtney? Yeah, other than AMD and NVIDIA, there are really not very many big name players in the graphics world that are, that are you know, that broad marketed to, to put on a giant booth. I remember uh, Microsoft introducing Soft Image. Whatever happened to that? Uh, from years ago at, uh, at SIGGRAPH uh, and Evans and Sutherland, you know, who was uh, making uh, industrial tools for our uh, uh, science and technology, you know, for uh, design and engineering tools. Uh, but other than those, you know, I guess SG, I, I maybe I didn't see it. You didn't stop by it, but did AMD and, uh, and NVIDIA have big booths there since they're yeah. the only really hardware manufacturers that are still in the graphics only processing stuff. You know? they, they probably had the biggest. They had 20 by 20 or 30 by 30, something like that. And mostly it's there to support their partners. So these are people that are using AMD or these are the people that are using NVIDIA. So it was more of a partner support uh, booth, which was great. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the first year that I was seriously went to NAB, I think I spent my first three, maybe four hours just in the Sony booth because there was so much to see. And I remember going, wow, when I saw the 50 cameras uh, from the littlest camcorders all the way up to the monster broadcast cameras set up in such a way that you could actually operate them. They were around a central scene that was well lit. And so for anybody who couldn't get their hands on a broadcast camera, never been able to use one, you could literally walk up and grab hold of the controls and operate the camera. But yeah, those days are long gone-ish. Uh, John Preto, you want to get in on this? I was the dealer for SGI for Southern Nevada. And if you ever find an Onyx, let, let me know, because I'd like to turn it into a fridge or a beer keg. <laughs> There's a lot of products that were a lot of money. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars that now are not even worth scrap. It's just the way the business has gone. Let's get to the next question. From Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm seeing a lot of ads for devices that add CarPlay to a car. Does anyone have any experience with and have they found them to work well? Uh, Mitchell Hill. Oh, I'm glad you asked this question because I have a reputation for turning cars in after the free Sirius XM uh, uh, experimental period uh, goes away. Uh, I've I played with them. I played with them in my current car, and I just don't think it's quite as well integrated as one that was designed specifically and as part of the car when you buy it. So I will say... Uh, wait until it's in the car you want or just trade your car and get it with Apple Play. Seems to be a better integration to me. Uh, Alex. I'm about to do this with my with my older car, so um, I will keep you up to date. These look like radios that are about, you know, I mean, well, the, my, if you understood, mine doesn't work anymore, so it needs to be replaced. Um, and so anyway, so I'm taking the one out of mine and putting it in. And um, the nice thing is you can get big screens and do cool things with it. So um, I'm going to spend a couple hundred dollars and give this a shot. So uh, stay tuned uh, for for an update or ask in September and I'll tell you how it went. 
So that time, got a couple of announcements before we switch into our second hour here. Tomorrow, Friday, we're going to be doing a breakdown of the tech we use for the live SIGGRAPH coverage. Uh, many of the de- behind-the-scenes folks, we hope as many as possible, maybe even everyone will be here to discuss that. So if you have questions, if you watched our uh, SIGGRAPH coverage and you have questions about how we managed to do that, how uh, the mobile rigs worked, we're going to be breaking all of that down. We'll talk with the crew, the people who were behind the scenes. So it, it was a very successful uh, couple of days, in my opinion. Um, the the hardware worked great. The signal looked great. Alex and uh, and everybody else were able to ping in. Uh, I didn't get a chance to take a look at the the test that Alex was doing for uh, 5.1 and the other things. So maybe those subjects will come up. But at least in terms of the regular broadcast stuff, uh, there's a lot to have learned from watching our SIGGRAPH coverage. And I think the idea of this is the test bed for shows that will be coming up. We're making continuous progress. So if you want to figure out how that was done, you want to look behind the scenes, figure out how big the crew was, who did what, and how that all got pulled together. Tomorrow is your place here at uh, the regular show. Uh, Saturday, we're going to have a marathon two-hour session devoted to Q&A of your most pressing production-related questions. The education folks and the accessibility folks who have been here for the last couple of weeks are kind of on hold a little bit as we make the transition. So um, that is going to be most of tomorrow. So if you've got a bunch of questions, it's a great day to come in and get things. So think about them now. And remember, you can put them in all afternoon this afternoon and tonight and they'll just wait there for the tomorrow morning show sunday is the only day we don't live stream as always so uh, youtube we're off tomorrow it tends to be a little more reflective and possibly speculative okay we are excited to welcome one of our dear friends has been around a long time and is on the panel today, Jonas Dottel. And Jonas is going to be telling us about his exciting news. I mean, PlayOut be his primary product. We've been talking about a long time, solves a lot of problems for people who want to inject video content into uh, streaming services and things like that. And he's on the cusp of releasing PlayOut B 2.0. So this is our chance. Jonas, great to see you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your news. Yes, yeah, so uh, we're finally in a stage where uh, version one kind of is like is getting three years old this year. So uh, version two is on the brink. If you have version one, you get the free version two upgrade right now, and you can upgrade to the latest beta already if you want to check all these features that I am talking about. Out, um, so let's just have a look at it. So um, let's see. That over. Yeah, so if we um, look at my screen, you see a bunch of stuff already changed. It's no longer blinding you if you work in a dark uh, gallery. We now have a dark mode. Uh, other than that, it's the same concept. You can open an output. Then in this output, you can play stuff. You can, uh, this is new, you can play uh, images. And uh, you can also import all of these. So I have a bunch of assets here that I all want to import here. So now I can have uh, music. Um, mute that for now. But you can play out music, all the different music. You can play out videos. But what's really cool and neat and like 
puts the you the customer's ability of those playlists to another level is you can now go in here you can set an in point you can set an out point so you can basically trim and uh, top and tail it a little bit you can change the volume so if you have a couple of music tracks and you don't have time to uh, master them before or you don't want to write the fader you can set the volume in here and it will uh, it's per clip so all of these settings you see right now are per clip based so let's say you want the same thing twice you could even say duplicate it has the same thing back here with the same properties i could now take another part of that video but twice as loud and uh, yeah and then what's also new is these actions so um you can decide what should happen at the end of every single uh, asset uh, it can pause, so it just pauses on the last frame. It can play the next clip automatically. If it's in a playlist, we actually preload it to make sure that uh, there's no delay between like from clip A to clip B. You can go to next, which will basically go to the next clip, be ready for you to hit uh, play again. You can loop the whole clip or you can reset it back to the first frame. So if you have something that you just want to play over and over again, you can reset it and then you can also rotate it. So if I rotate this by 90 degrees, actually look at it, you see it's rotated. Um, next, yeah. And what's also really cool is I have here my example of a video that's 9 by 16 because someone sent you 9 by 16 video. You asked them for a video for from the ocean and they filmed it on their phone and they forgot to flip their phone. It's very cool. Hey, I have a quick question for you. At the end, that end function where you say it lands on the last frame, is that detecting a frame or if you wanted it to go to black at the end of a clip, could you make the clip a little bit longer and put black at the end? And would it acknowledge that or is it looking for video? So it is pausing on the last frame we have in the video file, but what you can do is you can go into the settings and click uh, enable blackout on pause. So Perfect. when it pauses on the last frame, it just goes to black. Same for when you say play next, then it would actually like go to black and under the black prepare the next clip. So if you hit play again, um, it plays it. And actually black is not technically correct. It shows the background. Um, so one of the features, um, and all of this also works over the network in the browser. Um, and one of the cool features is if I open up the localhost, and then uh, go to output. And then I actually write output correctly. We now see we have the same thing here. One of the things to make sure is that you go in here, the website settings, and you set uh, audio to allow. Otherwise, we're not allowed to do uh, autoplay video. So if I now go back to here and I would try to play that. It says playback error, please enable all to play in the output. If we reload this and reset it, now we would just play it and the error will hide itself. But what you also can do is now the client gives you this last minute and you the client tells you, hey, we can't have black video in the background. Let's just make the background green. Now you make it green. But now, of course, you have a great client who says, hey, this really needs to be on brand. We have this nice background. Um, what you actually can do is you can go in here and say URL, put a URL in here, URL encoded as like online tools where you can do that, post it and it will take that image and put it in the background. So now it doesn't matter if it's a nine by 16 video and it fills the frame, you won't see the background. But if it's a nine by 16 video, um, 
it will make sure that there's something that's appropriate in the background. It just tries to stretch it on the background. Then what you might also have seen is the drop zone. So one of the things is when you have multiple stations and one of the stations is like ingest, you can um, open up a folder or anything and you can just say, hey, all of these things, I need them there now. It's going to upload all of these. So this is drag and drop. So what you now can do is you have a PC that prepares all the PowerPoints or keynotes. If they don't have animation, what we often do is um, we get the USB stick, you plug it in, you open it up in uh, PowerPoint or Keynote, and then you say export as PNGs, drag them in here, and now you have them in your playout system where you can have next control, you can pause them, you can um, add the video in between with the play next. So there's a lot of options that you have there. And if we now go to the Mac, you'll see the Mac is the exact same thing. That's the Mac instance. You can open up an output here. Same settings. Um, it's all the same. And that's one of the big parts that is important to us that from the Raspberry Pi to the Atom, uh, from the Raspberry Pi over the Mac to a Windows PC, it's always the same. So that way you can know if you build a workflow on Playout B, you can trust it that there's technically a little bit of a difference for the Raspberry Pi. We added some special commands for the Pi where you can shut it down and all that that aren't in the Mac OS and Windows version. But you know that the interface and the operator experience is going to be the same. So if you tell someone, hey, can you operate Playout B? They don't have to ask you, hey, is it a Windows, Mac or Pi version? And then one thing that is really important when you have a producer is you need a producer for you where they can't do any harm, but get all the information that they need. So you would have the time code, how much longer and what the current clip is that you're playing. So you don't have to answer that question manually all the time. And of course, all of this works over the internet. We have optimized it to work with Cloudflare tunnels as well. So if you want to put it in the cloud and expose it through that, um, that also works. Yeah. So you, you can use this and essentially make your own corporate TV station that runs automatically all the time. That's just one tiny piece. What are the kinds of things that you expect people to be doing with your system? We're actually having a lot of um, digital signage. So one of the cool things that is a little known uh, usage that you can do if we go back to my screen, um, you can see here there's the little uh, checkboxes here in front. If I go to, let's say here, if I uh, uncheck those and those are all set to um, play next, um, let's make this short real quick so we don't have to wait forever. And if I now play this, it's gonna play for a couple seconds and then it will actually jump to this asset. So what you can do is, um, and we have an open API for everything. Um, not everything is documented right now, but one of the things with Playout B is we want to be open to other developers to build their systems on top of it because we did the heavy legwork of building these outputs, making it cross-platform and everything. And we want to make sure that other developers don't need to do that and that they have an API. So if you go to our website, the API is there. There's every single um, HTTP call and we are also working on documenting our internal Socket.io uh, API that we use for the companion module. So you can just do that. But what you can do with this um, 
using the feature where you can select what things it should put into rotation is you can say every morning at three you put the good morning slate into rotation or what you can also do is just because this isn't in the rotation you can still play it so if i play this it still plays and then it will never be played again so you can customize you have 20 slates that should only trigger at a specific point play them and then the rest just go through so PlayOut B is software. It runs on a lot of different things from tiny, tiny uh, computers all the way up through big ones. Can you talk about the breadth of what you need to make this system function for the average user? Yeah, like on the smallest version, we have um, Raspberry Pi. There's like cool cases that have like a direct HDMI out or you have a normal Raspberry Pi 4, ideally with 2 to 4 gigabytes of RAM. And then from there, you can use pretty much everything that's able to play a YouTube video at 1080p without problems. If it can do that, it can you play it, can be used on it. So old Mac minis, the current Mac minis, of course, also work. Old Windows PCs, small NUCs. With the NUCs, you sometimes have to be aware that some uh, of the NUCs that you find on uh, Amazon that we're currently going through your testing is like, just running Windows without even player being installed, it's already maxing out 100% of the CPU. So like that's not something that we would do. So make sure that you actually have enough CPU to run any software on it. Um, you can run it in a cloud. You can get it as a web output. That's one of the things. And then you can also use the web output in vMix, in OBS, in Casper CG, um, in all the pro uh, different products that support web um, web sources to generate like key fill to overlay it um because one thing that we do support is if you do question mark bg equals uh transparent it will be transparent and so then you ha can have proper key fill with uh, vp8 and vp9 files um with your images if you play music it will be just fully transparent so uh yeah it it's available on the pref of devices and uh constantly trying to make it more performant on all of these and uh, yeah, enable more features on them. 2.0 is a big rev for you. And, and we were talking before the show when you first checked in, it, it, you thought it was going to be ready. You're, you're real close, but not quite there. What do people do if they're really excited about Play at B 2.0 and want to kind of get into the system? So you can buy it right now. If you go to playatb.com, you can buy it. Um, we actually have a summer sale that just started today for the rest of August where you get 30% off. So if you buy it right now, you will get um, version two. Everybody that bought version one gets version two. And then starting after that, any minor or big updates from version two, you will get if your date of purchase is within 12 months. So you get 12 months of updates with your license, um, but you all get uh, version two. And if you uh, log on to Gumroad, you should already see a uh, whole bunch of options there for all the different beta versions for version two. So 1.15 right now is the latest uh, beta version for version two. And if you install that, um, yeah, you should see the same thing that I have here right now already. Um, and you can use all those features. If you have issues with the API or all that, you can reach out to me and uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of users that use the API to build it into their own system, into their digital signage solution, into Playout systems onto like jumbotrons, all those kinds of things are possible, um, and we, yeah, we're just getting started with opening up the API access. We not only have a bunch of questions from our viewers, but we also have a bunch of panelists' questions. We're going to start with John Preto. John, 
I'm a very happy PlayOut B user. I have the interface running on my phone. I have version two running here. On this is a 55 inch uh, monitor on a on wheels that I move around here in my office. It's running on a Raspberry Pi, and it's I don't know what do you call it kiosk mode, Jonas. Yeah. You get the you get the image from Jonas, and then it auto boots. So I unplug this and move it, get it out of my way in my office. And then every morning I plug in and it auto starts and then I can control it remotely. Uh, I'm the, I am a universal owner, which means I have all three platforms. I run it on all three platforms. It runs great. I'm a very happy customer. Thank you. Cool. Well, uh, Alex, your thoughts. Yeah, this is a great upgrade. Um, a couple, a couple questions. Um, so one thing is when you're setting the in and out points, how do you see the video as you're setting those in and out points, um, as you move through that? That's a great question. Right now in the interface, we don't have like an editing interface. Mm -hmm. um, one of the workflows that we are internally using for that is we use a stream deck and with companion, what you can do is you can jog the video to a point and then there's like a set in point, a point yeah. and out point. That's how you can do it. But uh, a preview and like editing workflow, that's a... Uh, and that's fine. I mean, just just using the hardware there. So so you have the hooks in there that you can someone yeah. can use Stream Deck um, and and roll that to where they need to be. Yeah, you can uh, seek to any position. One of my favorite features is you can say uh, say seek to last. So you know, like in a run through, you start like the first ten seconds, and then the producer calls for, "Hey, let's go to the last thirty seconds." And I got so tired of doing that manually. So now in Player B, you can program yourself a little button in Companion that goes to the last 30 seconds on however long the clip is because it's dynamic. Um, and then it just plays out from there. It's, yeah. It, it shows you what. There. It's always why it's good to have a person who is actually doing this, uh, you know, in a business writing the software is that they're fixing a problem they see actually on the ground. Uh, it's, it's really, really fantastic. Uh, another question real quick is that, uh, so you talked a little bit about the automation, Cloudflare, and so on and so forth. But if I'm in the same uh, room with that computer, um, what are my options for use, companion? Uh, are there other hooks that I can use to uh, to run uh, PlayOut B? Yeah, so um, I've just opened up the API documentation. We have an open HTTP API that's documented right now. You have almost everything in there um, that the uh, web interface can do. We are constantly adding more. Uh, calls to that, like uh, even for the like opening the output, moving the output to a specific uh, pixel position, which is important for some um, jumbotron controllers that you can move it to zero zero and have it to a specific site. That all is in the API, and uh, you can use those. It does say post here, but the little secret is any of the um, HTTP uh, verbs would work. So, like literally, if I copy uh, this thing and we have you open up the player beyond the pie if the player be here and it's paused right now if I just put this into the browser hit enter it says okay and now it's playing so Isadora you can use Isadora you can use whatever you want to use to execute um, an HTTP call and yeah we're working on like more things with like um, web socket so you can get like instant updates and then can base your stuff on it. Courtney has some questions. Courtney? Oh, I got lots of questions. Gee, Jonas, I think this is a great update. Uh, it does almost everything I asked for. Uh, I appreciate that. 
course, I guess I'm not the only one that asked for that stuff. But uh, uh, now when people bug me for my playback software, which I don't sell, I can point them to PlayOut B because it does almost everything that my old software that I wrote 10 years ago does and I've been writing ever since. So I really appreciate uh, all the great uh, things that you've added, especially to the playlist. Uh, one one question I had, a couple of questions I had is is about the setting the endpoint and the outpoint. Can you click while a clip is playing? Can you click in that uh, 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 display where you choose endpoint and outpoint anywhere along the the uh, timeline and jump to that point? Uh, so like like you said, you know they say okay, I want to see the the intro to this, how it opens. The video is four minutes long, and then you want to you're running through a show. Then you want to jump to the end, thirty seconds, you know, ten seconds before the end, so you can see how the video ends. Can you just click on that timeline and uh, uh, for that particular clip and jump instantly down to the end? That's one question. Um, and the other question is, uh, can you put the playout window? Uh, you know, the one that you're controlling from your browser uh, or your web. Can you put that playout window on a different machine so you can control it over the net from uh, one machine and have the playout window be on a, another machine or multiple machines? So two questions for you. Yeah, so on the first question right now, we don't have, um, if you look at the interface, we only have like two markers for in and out. It wouldn't be... Um, totally absurd to have a third marker that shows the current play head. We're just working through like making sure you don't accidentally click something here while because you try to drag it. Um, so that's what is dangerous. Still. Yeah. 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 We, we really take a lot of time and uh, effort into trying to provide something that makes it easy for you to succeed in a playout job and not like hard and super like technical that you need to know everything to succeed in it. So like, yeah, I'm still trying to figure out what the best idea is to like allow you to scrub it, but also not scrub it while you're on air and all those right. types of considerations. One on other output, question, I'm yeah. oh, sorry, uh, relating to the in and out of the uh, uh, head and tail trim, uh, is that data stored in a, an accessory file? So it's once you choose top and tails on a specific file, if you close playout B and open it again and reload your playout list, your playlist, I, I assume you can, can you save your playlists? And so, if you reload it, do it, does it maintain that top and tail that you've selected previously for those files? Somewhere? Yeah, so it maintains all the top and tail. Um, you can also just go into uh, the JSON file and edit it in here if you would ever want to. Um, I'm not hiding any of the settings files. Um, you can go in here and edit stuff yourself if you don't want to use the interface. But yeah, Playout B um, not only saves in and out points, it saves all the things uh, per asset. So like also volume and everything. So you really can prepare it. And one of the things that now in this version it also saves is it saves where your current playhead is. So let's say it crashes and you need mm -hmm. to recover. If it crashes and you start it again, it and you your last action was playing at five minutes. What it's gonna do is it's gonna pick up playing the exact asset at five minutes again. So you don't need to manually scrap to it um, to continue that. It's also great for digital signage because it auto plays and all that. So that metadata is it stored in a sidecar file or is it just a single item so, or something that goes with that particular uh, session? Since uh, files can be multiple times in here, like I can duplicate this, mm -hmm. there's a JSON file that we store a playlist in. 
and that's just where it's stored. It's not like a file per uh, asset, because like you could have multiple instances of an asset, and uh, in and out points might be different. So it's just a JSON file. Okay, so the playlist stores each individual asset and all the metadata is in and out yep. points and, and et cetera. Okay, great, thanks. Chris Fenwick has some questions. Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, Jonas, thanks. And you know, like Jonas and I are pretty good friends, and. He'll be the first to tell you he's not the big the big Mac fan, but uh, he he and I talk quite a bit, and he's been really receptive to taking input from from me just as a Mac user. And I know that the uh, you know getting the Windows just right uh, was a bit of a challenge. I find it really interesting, Jonas, that you can, and this is probably normal, but to be able to give each file a different behavior, like those first two auto played through, this one just sits and waits. And I can trigger that one. By the way, apparently driving tomatoes around on I-5 is really dangerous. Look at that. Uh, and and then this one will just go to the next file and and wait. Um, but I love the fact that it's flexible in that way that you can um, treat each file differently. We, as I am not surprised to learn, have a bunch of questions here waiting. So let's get to our first one. Mitch, what have we got? First in from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Jack wants to know, if I don't use Companion, what's the easiest way to control Playout B with my Stream Deck? Yeah, uh, I, uh, Jonas, go ahead. Just pulled up uh, the Stream Deck app. So it works with the native Stream Deck app. You go to the API section, you have a look what you want to do. Let's, let's do the easiest. You want to do a play. Um, one thing to note is Playout B is what you should replace if you want to have it on a different device. So what you then go is you take the website handler here, you say play, then you go into the URL, you say get, and then we replace this with local, local host. And now it already arrived on my uh, stream deck. And if I hit play, it now plays it. It would not be at the end of the clip. Now place it and you can do that with all of the uh, commands if you want to do like a select. Um, all the parameters are in the URL, so you don't have to send a JSON body or anything. It's as simple as that. And then if you want to have uh, cool icons, we do sell an icon pack that has some uh, ByType player be official icons that you can then load into here. Oh, can I get a T-shirt with some of your official player be icons? That would be cool. Uh, anyway, uh, let's get to the next question. And Jonas, just answer them. I'm, you don't have to go through me. Matthias Utila from Helsinki, Finland asks, what is the better option to run Playout B performance-wise, a Raspberry Pi or mini PC like Beeline? And what are the differences when to consider hardware to run Playout B between Pi and similarly prized mini PC? We've spent a lot of time uh, editing and tweaking the Raspberry Pi and like a lot of people know how long it took and how many Zoom calls I joined with people where I was like, I just can't see the Raspberry Pi anymore right now because we had so many issues with it. But that said, it, we are really optimizing it for that. Um, you'll find that lower spec nooks that don't have hardware acceleration that can't even play a clip uh, YouTube in the browser correctly, PlayerB won't work with those. Um, at least not at the moment. So what we often do is like a little bit generation older systems. Um, the, the Pi is really the cheapest device and especially now that they have become available again, um, that makes sense. Um, 
the Nook also makes sense for some deployments, and we are working on like a Linux version that works in Ubuntu, so you can uh, use non-Windows Nooks as well. But uh, yeah, I, right now I would say if you want the cheapest, that's the Pi, and then you can choose a Nook that has like a i3, i5, and uh, you'll be fine. Next question. Wouter Vino Frisco from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, is 2.0 working with Central Control and Companion 3.0? Uh, so central control, I'm not 100% certain, but we are we are doing everything in our um, way with the HTTP calls and the API that it should be really easy from any program that has any like HTTP triggers to trigger player B because we are not like snobbing and say, hey, you need to call it this exact way. I'm like, hey, you got the message to me. I'll do what you want me to do. Um, so yes, it probably is available with uh, central control with uh, companion. You can either use the HTTP uh, API for the stuff that we haven't brought into the uh, native module yet, but we also uh, worked hard on uh, getting a native module into companion version three that works with works with version two. The really cool thing with that is it's based on our private socket API, and so now if you change the files, you'll see it instantly. You can get uh, titles for all of the files. So you, your buttons are named correctly. Um, it's a really cool module and you should check it out. Next question. Bill Mew from Tunbridge Wells, UK with a single Play B license. Can you use it on a PC, Mac and a Raspberry Pi or do you need a separate license for each platform or device? So the normal licenses are per OS and per device. So you can buy a Mac OS, uh, a Mac version, a Windows version, and a Raspberry Pi version. The Mac version is the only one that gives you ARM64 and uh, x64 for Intel and M1 and M2 Macs. That's where you get kind of get like two versions. But for all of the other ones, you should buy one license per device that you're using it on and you can't change like with the Raspberry Pi license, you don't get player B for the for Windows. But there's a really great uh, license called Flex. It gives you free licenses that you can activate on whatever system you want. So three Windows systems or two Windows systems and one Mac. Uh, we have a lot of users of that that are just flexible. Sometimes they use the Pi, sometimes they use Windows, sometimes they use a Mac. Um, yeah, with the Flex license, you get a bit of a discount versus when you would buy all three of them. And yeah, it's uh, then you can use multiple on multiple OS. Courtney had a follow up for that. Courtney, yeah, I don't know if we got to the second part of my question. I think I may have diverted you uh, when I asked you if you could move the play the actual play window to a different machine. And I don't know if you answered that. I can't remember. And if you can move the play window to a different machine on the same local area network, uh, do you have to have play out be? licensed on the machine that you move that window to that's the question cloud b only needs to be licensed on the machine that the server the software sits and then you can open up the output window on however many browsers or browsers you want um, it will elect itself a leader that it's uh, going off for time code so that's good to know it's not like in the past you had primary and secondary window right now it's just an election process who gets to be the leader um, for the clock and then you can use it wherever you want. Just type in the URL slash output and uh, you'll see the output. Make sure that you enable autoplay so I can actually play it there and yeah, we'll just work. And does the asset have to exist on the secondary computer on the network no. or does it pull we the asset all, in real time off the We network? host all the assets on the Play Out B 
device and then we stream it over to the computer that's playing so it. it's streamed in real time okay yeah. thank you next question from jack cannon in phoenix arizona can play lb be integrated into a replay system yes so this is one of the really cool things um not in a sport sense but let's say you have um office hours or an event um, if we can go to my screen i just uh, dialed into one of our cloud machines and what i did here is i have obs just uh, capturing the stream and i'll hide that real quick and what you then can do is you can click um, save replay buffer that saves the last 20 seconds of whatever happened it puts it into our watch folder automatically so it gets added here automatically if i go here we now have uh, myself talking about that feature and what you then can do is I triggered it a couple of times during the show. You can uh, automatically create a highlight cut. So you can say every time somebody said next question, we could cut out. You trigger it with the in and out points. You can optimize it so you actually have the right um, timing. But that's uh, one way how you could use it as a replay system. The one thing we don't support right now is um, different playback speeds. But yeah, this would be a really neat way of uh, doing like an event capture um talk about a couple of things and with uh like we said with the next asset item you can just say hey actually it should just stop here it should go to the next it should do whatever you want and then you can create a highlight reel chris fenwick has a follow-up chris Jonas, can you go back to that play at the the replay system there for a second and can we show that just a question could you play the third clip again did you want yeah, to see yourself? Yeah, that's perfect. Again? That's all I needed to see. Thanks. Perfect. <laughs> Chris is on brand every day. Courtney Gooden, yet another follow-up. Yeah, and in that playout list, can you can you export that to an EDL or something that could be brought into other editing software like uh, you know uh, Premiere? Not at this point in time. Okay. Why do I think Chris is going to want that? clip so he can prove to his wife that she he wore a different shirt on the show for at least one day let's go to the next question and i've got a question i'd really like my hyperdex to be controlled the same way as playout b any chance you could allow remote control so the hyperdex are getting more and more http apis um especially the shuttle and uh two high-end uh, extremes that's all i can say on that for now Oh, I love that kind of answer. That's all I can say for now. Keywords. Mitchell, you had a follow-up? Yeah, one can only hope. Thank you, Jonas, for considering it. The other thing is it would be kind of neat is I like my shuttle. I just don't like the way it can be controlled with their uh, their software. Wouldn't it be cool to use that nice hardware device with that brilliant uh, shuttle knob on it to control Playout B? So, just saying. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> the non-committal committal. Let's move to get the next it out question. Of <laughs> All right, next one up from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Jonas, what other B apps are you working on? Yeah, so I'm working currently on a bunch of like remote production tools. We have a multi-viewer that we are using now that uh, allows you with the same or better latency than Zoom to get video signals across the globe uh, for monitoring. Then we have a MIDI-B, which is remotely connecting MIDI devices for audio mixing. And then we have a remote B, which or connect B, which allows us to uh, connect different browsers and uh, PD sets together. But all of these are still in a phase where we kind of do them on like an install for a client. So if that's something that you need, we 
provide that for clients. And we build a lot of custom software and automation right now for clients for like studio automation and automation like officers, if you want something like that. That's something that we build right now. Um, yeah. Coming soon, come. the Playout Hive, the apiary for video. Let's go to the next question. From Tommy Shans in St. Paul, Minnesota. What is the Pi minimum requirements and will it work on a 3 plus? We don't support the Raspberry Pi 3 plus. It might work on it. Um, it's really hard right now to support anything else than the Raspberry Pi 4. And I would say get the Raspberry Pi 4, 2 or 4 gigabyte of RAM. There you go. Kind of a min config. Let's go to the next question. Marty Atias from Maryland is in. Uh, does the output screen scrub over video and or audio when setting in and out points? Right now it does not scrub over because we wanted to make sure that the output only shows what you want to play. Um, so that's one of the things we are considering maybe having like a preview output where it would scrub, but we wanted to prevent you from like playing this clip and then you actually want to scrub the next clip and suddenly you're scrubbing live on the air. I wanted to prevent that. There you go. Good answer. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, can Playout B be controlled via OSC or MIDI? Uh, you'll need a protocol translator. Um, if you go to uh, github.com slash ohglobal, you'll find an OSC REST um, tool, and that will be able to send commands to Playout B. We don't have MIDI support. Next question. David Brady in New York, New York. Is there an option for go to 10, 20, 30? What about scrub and shuttle? So you can, um, using the API, you can uh, go to a specific timestamp. You can go to a specific milliseconds in a clip. You can do that. And then if we open up the ATIP software control, uh, you also have here, you have the uh, shuttle and jog also um, working. Next question. Henry Ramos from Yonkers, New York. Might be useful to have the action for each clip in another column since you've got a bit of uh, room there. So the OP can have the confidence in the action chosen without right-clicking. So yeah, if we look at the, the interface, what you'll see is there's a little pause icon left to the timecode. If I change this to play next or to go to next or to loop or reset, uh, you will see that it changes so that way you can always be sure what your clip is going to do next um, that's always always the most up-to-date symbols might take a minute to uh, get the custom to uh, yeah you can always see it here next question Wouter Vino Fresco from Amsterdam the Netherlands so if Playout B is running on a Raspberry the video files need to be on the SD card in the berry <laughs> No. So what you can do is if you go into the settings, there's uh, two folders that you can use. Um, if you go to the normal view, do you have the clip folder? And if you enable the watch folder, you can also set the watch folder to wherever you want to set it. So what you can do is you can set the clip folder to a USB drive, an SSD that you attach to the um, 
to the Raspberry Pi, you might need to go a little bit into Linux to mount it automatically. But what you can also do is um, use the watch folder. So what a lot of clients wanted to use FTP to import uh, stuff into PyRB. So what you can do is you set the watch folder to the SSD FTP into it and copy all the files over. So that way you have a really fast, secure file transfer and PyRB will um, scoop them all up and play them. What we did is the watch folder actually syncs. So if you remove a file from the watch folder, it also gets removed from the playlist. So that is meant for churches or different organizations who want to sync their playlist across like a lot of player bees. What you can do is you can set it up for Google Drive, iCloud or whatever syncing app you have. And if you add a clip, it gets added to all playlists. But if you remove it, it also gets removed from all the playlists. So that way you can also have the correct clips everywhere. Hey, Jonas, I'm, in, I'm curious, are there any resolution limitations on PlayOut B? Can you play like a, a 8K file out of it or things like that? Or is it limited to the standards? You're only limited by your processor and your video output. PlayOut B does not, I don't implement artificial limits for any of that. The Raspberry Pi can't do anything else than 1080p. Um, but Mac OS and Windows can do 4K or even more um, if you have a system that can support it. Um, one thing with PlayerB is it also supports odd resolutions. So on Windows, if you have a screen that's 4x3, 3x4, 8x7, or whatever, as long as your asset is the same size, it will just make sure that the asset fills the output and you won't have any issue that it like needs to put it on a 16x9 canvas and crop it or something like that. Um, yeah, we just do all of these things. So that's really nice that you can throw in files that have different rasters and different pixel densities or whatever, yeah. and it'll just figure it out and play them back. Yeah. Excellent. Next question. Um, I think Courtney had a uh, comment. Oh, I'm sorry. Courtney, did you have your hand up on that? Yeah. yeah it, was a, it was a, sorry, it was a question about the resolution of the playout. Uh, uh, does it use the, uh, I guess it uses Electron as its playout engine. Does it use... Uh, uh, GPU for decoding H.264 and 265 if it's built into the GPU or is it all done in the CPU? So you have to have a FD CPU or will it use the, like the Intel, in all the Intel mobile chipsets have H, you know, H.264 and 265 encode and decode on the GPU. Uh, will it do that to take the, take the onus off your CPU for uh, doing playouts of 4K, et cetera? It depends on the availability of that uh, codec. We try to use it. Um, sometimes it works better if you use Chrome or Chromium and play it out just as a browser window that way, because sometimes they have better uh, built-in support for hardware encoders, like that's what we're doing with the Raspberry Pi. There's a special build of the Chromium that we use that has uh, access to its uh, VAP codec, encoder and decoder. Um, so we try to use it, um, but it's not something that you can tr can control at this point. There you go. Thank you. Uh, next question. From Jeff Dooley in Chicago, Illinois. Can you record a playlist to build a package? No, you can't export it. But what you could do is you could put it into OBS and record it in OBS. And when it's ended, you just stop the record. Um, that would be one option right now. There's no way to say, hey, render your timeline out as a, as a MP4 or something like that. Courtney has a follow up on that? 
And if it crashes, does it maintain the playlist somewhere so it'll come back with the same playlist, or do you, would you have to rebuild the playlist? Yeah, it, it, if it crashes, it just comes back. If you shut down the PC, if it loses power, it will just come back. It, like I said earlier, it will also mark where it was, so it will actually pick up at the same time code where it was. Um, and in in that particular file, but let's say you've chosen in and out points on ten different files, will it come back and all will yep. all those input and output uh, stuff all of the things are saved on the disk and uh, reloaded as soon as it starts currently last question in the system from marty atias in maryland is it possible to highlight clips in the playlist and see the total playing time right now you can only select one clip and uh, you'll just see how long that specific clip is Jonas, I know you've been working on this a long time. Is there anything on your horizon that you're willing to disclose to us about what you're thinking about next in terms of features for this or anything else? I think one feature that's really cool uh, to see um, if we can go to my screen again is let's say we have um, we have a clip where somebody this client calls you and is like, hey, at uh, five seconds to 10 seconds, we're showing a CEO that we just dismissed. We really can't show the thing, but there's no editor on hand that can uh, manage it. So what you do is you can duplicate that clip. And the first one you say from zero to say five seconds, set that to five seconds. And yeah, actually we want to do it on this one to five seconds, you can set it. And then on the second one, you want to say, hey, pick up at 10 seconds. So now if you set this to play next, if you play this one, um, if you play this one, it will jump over the thing that you wanted to cut out. So this was built for us when we have like last minute, hey, you really just need to cut them out. I don't care what it takes, cut them out. That's how you can do that. Um, Yeah, and then the volume control really has been helpful for us because like if you are used to for example vmix and vmixes list you can't change the volume on a per clip basis so if you have used to submitted content then suddenly everything is different and you need to run it through a pipeline but it's way better if you can like start to fix it at the start and uh, level it out there so you do have really rudimentary scene deletion editing in there you just have to do it by duplicating the clip and setting yeah them. yeah that's cool, though. It, it solves the problem in most cases because I've run into exactly what you're talking about. You know, hey, there was a big shakeup and the third person scheduled uh, who talked in the video, we can't have them on because they're suing us or something. Those things do do show up. So it's a great feature to have. Uh, we do have another question next. From Bill Mew in Tunbridge, Wells, UK. Uh, Bill asked, uh, in addition to Companion, do you also have a native Stream Deck plugin? That's one of the things we're still uh, looking and working on. Um, right now, you can just use the website caller and uh, do it that way, but obviously you don't get feedback with that at this point. Um, it's something that we would really much like to have. Jonas, we are always excited to have you come back to office hours to t- bring us up to date on what's going on. This So many people in our community use this with great effect, um, and everybody I know who kind of lives and dies by being able to play out content into streams just says this is a really, 
really useful tool set. So we're excited doing it. Uh, you mentioned 2.0 is coming out very soon, but if you were to purchase right now on the special, and can you remind us of the special uh, that's so running? You can always use uh, Office Hours as a discount code, and you get 10% off of that. And right now, for the rest of August, you can use a summer sale. You get 30%. And like I said, PlayerBee is just I'm really trying to release it before the first third anniversary, and that is just before IBC, so that will all uh, fit in perfectly. And you can uh, think of there probably will be a price increase at the release of uh, version two. So uh, if you need more licenses right now, there's a thirty percent off sale with summer sale. It's probably a great idea. And don't expect to put in office hours summer sale and get 40% off. That is not how these things work. So don't expect no. it. <laughs> it's all right. Again, so excited to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, as always, we want to say thank you to the producers, everybody who has asked questions, voted on questions. This is a community effort that we uh, rack up every morning and do, and it exists based on participation by those of you who are watching, listening, and everything else. You are our producers, and without you, this show isn't what it's supposed to be. So thank you for taking your time to show up every day and put these questions in. To our panelists, always the heart and soul of the show. Uh, nobody's getting paid around here. We're all showing up because we're interested in putting out information into the community, kind of giving back. I think almost all of us have spent our entire careers being helped by other people, uh, helping us kind of get to the next level of things. And so you've got high-level professionals who know a ton about the production arts who show up every day, generously donate their time to answer questions. And we appreciate every panelist who's been on this panel since the very first show. They've, it's an amazing group of individuals. Um, and lest we forget... Behind anybody or anything you see on the screen, there's a huge crew of people who are working to make office hours happen every day for the silent army back there all around the world. I mean, literally any particular day, this is being touched by people in the Great British area, in um, uh, Malaysia, everywhere around the world. We all come together to make this happen in a virtual thing, and we appreciate every single person who puts in their time on the crew. Uh, tomorrow, don't forget, we are going to be breaking down some of those people, and you'll see some of those people on the air because it's our um, look at uh, the show that we just did yesterday. So for those of you who are interested in how Office Hours comes together and a really look in the back end, uh, our SIGGRAPH coverage will be broken down tomorrow. And after the show is over. We are going straight into After Hours, which is always running 24-7. Let's look at our stats for today. The Tlaloc Traversal, we covered 56,652 miles today. It's on 91,172 kilometers. So if you'd had to go to these people and get these answers, that's how much extra mileage you would have had to put on your credit card. So uh, it, it worked for you. It's more than 448 million bananas for scale or 2.3 times around the earth. Thank you for spending your time with us today as always, and we will see you tomorrow. It's my play out B impersonation. Is is there a oh. fly in B, play out B? What it was. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> <laughs> you know the thing. It should ship with a B.
like yeah. the video, your base, your oh, base you video go. should just always be there's a little bee running around. Like, like you should do a little packet of honey from a restaurant. Send it with a screensaver instead. You no, know, I looked toaster. into shipping honey internationally. And then decided that that like because that would have been a there really was, cool thing for like the yeah, anniversary. But yeah. there was a band called Voice of the Beehive. Oh, you should you should listen to them. Maybe there you can use that somewhere. But Voice of, there's a band from the '80s and early '90s called Voice of the Beehive, and they they sent out a single that it was called Honey Linger, or the album was called Honey Lingers, but they sent out a demo disc of it that had honey in the liner. Like it had honey in the liner, Ooh. and and the one that <laughs> they sent to our turntable. the one they sent to our radio station got crushed, got crushed, and there was just honey everywhere. There were five of them that were like the height of two of them, <laughs> just honey all through the box. <laughs> Yonas, you need a slogan like uh, like Winamp used to have, really kicks the llamas, you know, whatever. But uh, get a slogan. If Kentucky Fried Chicken goes under, they got gazillions of packets of honey for those biscuits. I snap them up. <laughs> great, great work, Jonas. Jonas, that's yeah. great, really good. Absolutely, Absolutely. Cool. great to see you I'm today. I'm gonna have to go download number two now. Okay, try it out. All right. I'm still there praying the for the remote. Still In praying. This is bought. Nice. Thank I'm you. I'm waiting all. for the portable license that could go on a USB key, so I can use it on any one of my 100 computers that I have. <laughs> all right. I'm going to go get breakfast before our next meeting. Bye, everybody.